KBHDD is reminding Georgians to ask their doctor about alternatives to opioid pain medication. Alternatives such as over-the-counter medications and physical therapy can be used to manage pain. More information at opioidresponse.info. Thanks for listening to the Political Rewind podcast. Be sure to like and follow us and rate us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. It's time for another Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. Thank you all for uh, being with us for this edition of the show. Lots to talk about, lots of big news uh, that's uh, breaking uh, here in the state and uh, at the nation's capital. And we'll get to that with our panel uh, right now. Tamar Hallerman, uh, senior reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, is my Tuesday partner on the show, and she joins me uh, today. Uh, Tamar, how are you? Great. Happy to be here. A lot to talk about, right? It's hard to keep up. <laughs> <laughs> it sure is. Chauncey Alcorn is with us. He's a reporter for Capital B, which uh, Capital B News, which is a terrific new digital news service that uh, focuses uh, on uh, the African American community largely, and on news of particular interest to uh, the uh, Black community. There's an Atlanta edition with Chauncey writes for, which you can get to. Chauncey, correct me if I'm wrong. Atlanta dot capital. B News, and that's capital with an A, not a capital O like the nation's capital, capitalbnews.org. I got that right, Chauncey? You got it right, 100%, like always. It's uh, it's really great to have a new uh, news service like yours, and I'm really happy that you are joining us for Political Rewind as frequently as you now are doing. Amy Steigerwald is back with us, professor of political science at Georgia State University and associate head of the political chair of the political science department. Amy, how's your summer going? Does that does this work as a department chair make your life a little more demanding in the summertime? Can you be as relaxed as when you're just teaching classes? Um, there's definitely a bit more work um, that comes into it because there's an administrative side and that doesn't stop, especially because there are summer classes, too. So we have to sort of keep it going. But Well, we're happy that you are willing and able to take time to be with us uh, on the show today. And Leo Smith uh, is back with us. Leo is a longtime Republican um, activist in Georgia. He worked with the state Republican Party doing outreach to minority communities and has moved on now to start his own organization, which does a great deal of government relations work, Engaged Futures. How are you, Leo? I'm doing great, Bill. Happy to be with all these brilliant people. <laughs> hey, Leah, when do your guys go back to school? I have public schools uh, in many parts of the state are starting. Uh, when do your kids uh, go back? When do you get them off your hands for the fall? Well, of course, my two public charter schools that I'm involved with, uh, Atlanta Classical and Northwest Classical, they'll start up next. Uh, they've already started with the regular public school system. My kids are at Westminster School, and they have started their activities, and they start school next week. Do All right. Definitely school back in session across the state. All right, Tamar, uh, it's interesting that, excuse me, I think one of the biggest stories today, and certainly the Atlanta Journal-Constitution played it very big. Um, When I opened my paper this morning, it was a banner headline on the front page. Um, Music Midtown canceled. This has been off and on over a number of years, I think it's safe to say the most important music festival in the Southeast, drawing tens of thousands of fans to see some of the biggest names in uh, contemporary music. And it's now been canceled. The promoters of the event, Live Nation, are being very quiet about why they canceled it. They issued a relatively uh, a stark statement saying, We're not going to be able to hold it next month. We hope to be back soon. But reporting makes it pretty clear that they could not uh, cope with the fact that Georgia's permissive gun laws were creating problems for having this event in the park. And we ought to get into that in, in more detail because it's the result of a court case a few years ago in Georgia. But why don't you start us off on this subject? 
Yeah, I think a lot of folks initially thought that it must have had to do with the state's latest gun law that that was passed, the the permitless carry. But actually, it stretches back to a gun law that that Governor Deal signed into law back in 2014. And it kind of expanded when people could carry on public lands. And there was a dispute in the Botanical Garden not too far away at the, the top edge of Piedmont Park over this. And the organizers, it sounds like we're worried about lawsuits on two fronts. You know, they were worried that they could get a lawsuit from gun owners um, who wanted to be able to take their guns onto the, the property. Remember, Piedmont Park is a public place. The Botanical Garden can actually ban people because they're a long-term tenant in the park. And this, some court decisions have said they can block it, but it's different for a short-term event like a music festival. So they were concerned about lawsuits on that front. They were also concerned about musicians who would refuse to perform. Remember, this is after, you know, the, the uh, Bataclan um, mass shooting in Paris, after what happened at the Las Vegas Country Music Festival a couple years ago, and of course, all the awful shootings that we saw this year. And there's many artists who wouldn't want to perform. They even have stuff written in their contract that they won't perform in a place that could allow um, weapons. And it really... You know, obviously, it's a massive hit to the city. It's, it's something that I'm expecting Democrats to run with. I can see Republicans making a similar argument after what happened with the All-Star Game last year. It also raises major questions about what's going to happen with all of Atlanta's other major music festivals coming up this year and going forward. These are a huge economic boon for the city. Yeah, uh, thank you for uh, giving us such a, a great uh, a little summary of what, what that was all about. By the way, when you talk about uh, shootings at, at music events, it, the, the Manchester, England uh, uh, shooting at an Ariana Grande concert was horrifying and was another example of why more and more artists are, in fact, putting riders in their contracts saying, we will not perform in a venue where guns are allowed. Um so, Chauncey, I think it's important that Tamar point out, I think all of us, when we saw this news initially, before we knew anything about the reasoning, thought this must have to do with Governor Kemp signing into law the permitless carry uh, law that now uh, uh, prevails in the state. But as Tamar points out, this goes back to like 2014 and ever more permissive gun laws in the state, Right. Yeah, I think the, as far as um, some of the other events, I know that uh, one of the ones I was that came to mind for me was Afropunk, um, which mm. is uh, mm. you know an annual music festival coming up in September. Um, I but I, I while that's uh, you know in terms of which law this applies in this situation, um, I don't know if that's going to matter as much to voters who are concerned about guns one way or the other. Um, I think uh, it's going to be interesting. Um, to see um, as the Democrats uh, try to capitalize on the Uvalde shooting and Buffalo and others. And, and um, obviously the polling shows that most uh, Georgians were not in favor of the state's new uh, constitutional carry law. So it'll be interesting to see, because uh, traditionally when you think of guns, that's an issue that tends to animate the right more than the left. But this is a different kind of a year. So it'll be interesting to see what happens in November. Leo? Now, there's a couple of interesting situations about this um, this application of the law or, you know, this management of the ecosystem related to a law. Um, Mr. Evans, who filed a lawsuit uh, about the gardens, uh, is not a political operative. Just let me say that. So he's not sort of doing something with this sort of a Republican populist pro-gun uh, sort of modality. It, it's truly about this personal interest, this personal self-interest. And it's really a complication that Republicans are also very concerned about. I mean, everybody likes a party. And when you take away fun from people, that this does animate a certain base of people. So this is going to have some political um, implications when it comes to get out the vote. I mean, I've seen candidates win elections because they give a lot of parties. <laughs> they throw parties. So you're taking away fun from people, not a good move. Now, for the city, I think this is really important. Uh, you know, I sort of checked in with the source. Why can't they just have a long-term lease? Quickly give them a long-term lease and this solves the problem. I'm sure that's part of the solution that Music Midtown is uh, uh, looking at, and I see Amy's are shaking her head. So the issue is what complicates that? And I'm sure uh, Professor Steigerwark could <laughs> share a little Amy, bit Amy, jump that. in. 
Amy, jump Sorry, in. It's, it's more, I mean, the problem is going to be, right, the court ruling, the, so what happened is, is, right, there was sort of the law got passed, there was a Supreme Court ruling that was about the Atlanta Botanic Gardens, and then there was a very recent um, lower appeals court ruling that was about this question of the long-term lease versus the short-term lease. And so the problem here would be that, like, you can't really have a long-term lease if you're not actively using it. And so that would be really the issue, right? It's known Music Midtown uses it for three days a year, right? Maybe we send it to a week because of the sort of, you know, set up and set down. And so under sort of the legalities, especially that the appeals court laid out, it puts them still in that sort of short-term lease issue as opposed to long-term lease. And so what they're probably more likely to do is look for land that would be private. Uh, now, that, of course, changes the character of it, right? I mean, that's, it's not going to be in the city. Um, there's not sort of large areas that are like that. It also starts to bring up um, now, because of this, all of these other places and how that impacts them. So within, um, I think it might have been the Axios piece mentioned that they also recently got uh, the Home Depot backyard, which is set up as sort of tailgating mm -hmm. at the Falcons games right outside uh, that they now cannot restrict guns from coming uh, into there. Um, it does bring up questions about um, what does it mean for the stadiums? Because a lot of the stadiums are, right, so technically the city owns uh, the Mercedes-Benz Stadium and the land around it. Now one could say, again, this is that long-term lease, but it comes into those questions. But then that would bring up, for example, a question of um, Atlanta is in the running to host, and we are supposed to host, one of the World Cup games, uh, which would be phenomenal. But again, that would be a short-term usage rather than a long-term usage. And this might be something that would uh, cause the FIFA, right, to pull it. And so I think what is perhaps really important here is that unlike the MLB game, right, if we want to try to analogize, that was very clearly a political protest. This is really capitalism. Right. This was Music Midtown saying the insurance costs are possibly going to go up and that's too high for us to deal with. We don't know the legalities of this. And so this could affect right, what we're able to do. And the fact that most of the artists that are set to perform, this would be a violation of their contracts. And so they would pull out. So therefore, we just simply can't do this. And it does then bring up what's going to happen because there's also shaky knees, which brings in really a national population. Uh, to come to that concert, you've got, uh, I think, is Shaky Beats still going on? You've also got the one, um, the big EDM one. There's, um, you know, Afro Beats, but then there's, there's another one that's them. coming up soon. <laughs> there's there's right? a and lot. A huge, there's yeah. a lot. So, um, uh, uh, Tamara, Amy brings us to the politics of all this. We're now f less than 100 days away from the November election. And, of course, as you pointed out at the very beginning, this is being uh, dealt with as a hot political issue by both sides. So uh, we have Democrats uh, uh, saying uh, that this is all the fault of the permissive gun laws. For example, Jen Jordan is quoted in today's AJC as saying, quote, Republicans want to say they're all about business, but the radical no compromise wing of the GOP controls their party. And this is a consequence of that. Um, on the other hand, um, you've got, and, and Stacey Abrams, by the way, uh, blasted Governor Kemp uh, uh, talking about his, quote, dangerous and extreme gun agenda. Um, but the other side of this is we have Burt Jones, the Republican lieutenant governor candidate, saying, uh, he, making a comparison that Amy just uh, sort of disputed, saying, here we go again. This is like Stacey Abrams blocked the All-Star game uh, as a political protest. Now we're seeing the same thing happen with Music Midtown. Uh, Tamar, the only problem with that approach is that Stacey Abrams told Major League Baseball she hopes they'll still come. And number two, as Amy points out, that was a political protest. This is practical. This is a very practical decision by the biggest concert promoter in the country. Bill, we know that nuance has no place in a 30-second political <laughs> ad or in a And it is so easy to take something like this and to villainize, you know, your avatar, your foil on the other side. So Abrams is doing it with Kemp right now, even though he was not governor in 2014. Burt Jones is doing it with Stacey Abrams. It is such a convenient 
uh, punching bag and, and kind of thing for people to, to cite. And looking at the latest AJC poll, it makes so much more sense. Um, you know, something like two-thirds of Georgians are extremely concerned about gun laws, um, you know, and, and so obviously, let me, um, here, I'm pulling it up right now, and it's like the top issue right up there with inflation in terms of the, um, you know, in the eyes of Georgians, and so I think that says a lot, and it's not only kind of progressives who want to see a tightening of gun laws. It's also conservatives who are concerned that their guns could be taken away from them. And so it, it, it's not surprising at all that both sides would, would jump on something like this. Tamar, may, maybe I uh, haven't seen the crosstabs on that question in the AJC about how concerned people are about gun laws. But I thought it was worded in such a way that I couldn't figure out whether that means some people said, yes, we're concerned about it because they believe there should be more uh, ability to carry a weapon, or whether people were saying, yeah, we're frightened by the proliferation of guns. And I, I, I couldn't tell whether the question really deals with that. Amy, do you know the answer to that? The question was sort of a simple one. It just says, quote, how important is gun violence in deciding how you will vote this November? So you could interpret That's that in right. whichever way you want to. Now, what is interesting, if you go into the cross tabs, is that... Um, extremely important and very important dominate for Democrats. In fact, um, it is, it's, it's extremely important at 61%. And then, so it's almost 91% say that. For Republicans, it's a little bit less, actually. You, you've got um, a little, almost 60% say it's either extremely or very important. And then sort of similarly for independents. And so, this could be, um, this was, of course, taken before right, this decision was made about the concert, but it's interesting that we are seeing that being an issue activated more when it normally is not actually quite as much. Like, usually our single-issue voters on guns are actually on the Republican side as opposed to on the Democratic side. Chauncey, jump in. Yeah, I'm, I'm, are I'm, you I'm, there? I'm, yeah, I'm sorry. <laughs> Can you hear me? Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah, as far I think it's just you know it's going to be interesting to see how it plays out in November. I don't I don't really know um, it's, uh, why um, the uh, as, as far as Afropunk and others uh, whether they plan on pulling out or whether it's going to be interesting to see how the different um, venues um, decide to uh, whether or not they decide to follow suit with uh, with uh, Midtown on this. I don't I don't really know how it's going to play out. Uh, Leo, uh, you've been following politics. You've been involved in, in partisan politics and elections and campaigns. So you've been a consultant for a long, long time. Uh, it, it, you take a, list, a look at that poll, which is Tamara and Amy point out, really gun violence rises very high in the level of people's concerns in this election year. It, and it, But it's hard to get a sense of how that will motivate voters one way or the other, isn't it? It is, and that's what both um, partisan um, efforts are going to be looking at as it relates to getting out the vote. Mm -hmm. um, for Democrats, are there enough people upset about you know the assault weapon issue and uh, this open carry issue and now this impact on music midtown and business? Are there enough that that's going to turn out a new base of voters um, that weren't previously voting? that weren't previously voting. And for Republicans, it's, it's mostly campaign promises about uh, um, implementing certain gun um, open carry allowances. And then, of course, we deal with the governance that has to happen after the fact. And so Republicans are trusting that uh, local government and state government are gonna be able to figure out in an entrepreneurial way how to innovate on this and adjust to this new law. And I think that's what the discussion is going to be over the next few days. You know, before we move on tomorrow, I, Karen Owen, uh, of course, who our listeners know, is a professor of political science at the University of West Georgia. On the show yesterday, made what I thought was a salient point about all this. Um, single issue voters are fewer and farther between in, in the sense that so. It isn't likely that the new abortion law is going to necessarily drive voters to the polls to vote against Republicans. The single issue of how permissible our gun laws are may not, but it's the accumulation. 
she points out. It's the culture that people see coming from one party or another that can, in fact, motivate them. And I thought that was a really uh, smart observation, Tamar. And I think that when it comes to single issue voters, the issue of guns specifically is very much a motivating factor for a small slice of the Republican Party. It is small, but they are extremely reliable voters and they are extremely riled up on this issue constantly. And I think that feeds into why you never see a really substantive gun control, you know, deal on Capitol Hill, even after the grisliest shootings. It's because Republican lawmakers know that this small but very mighty portion of their base, this is their issue. And this is kind of the culture that permeates their being and that those people show up to the polls. You think about an event like Music Midtown, it's a lot of young people. It's folks in high school, in college, the years right after. Those tend to be lower propensity voters. And are they really going to remember a music festival when they go to the polls, if they go to the polls at all? The folks who are going to be the most riled up are those ultra conservatives who are always riled up on guns. By by the way, Amy, I I think what Tamara just said really uh, resonates with me. I suspect that there are many, many Georgians who don't have children, say, or haven't had children who were teenagers or are teenagers now, or who don't live anywhere near Piedmont Park, who have no idea about the impact of Music Midtown. If you're like I am, and you had two children raised up to go to Music Midtown as an almost religious experience, you know how important it's been. But again, Tamar points out, it's younger people who really gravitate to Music Midtown. Well, as a proud Midtown resident who goes to Music Midtown and Shaky Knees, and actually <laughs> most of the other ones that are in the thing, this uh, this hits home in a very personal way. And my children yesterday were uh, complaining that they were not old enough to vote yet, which was kind of delightful, actually. I'd like that we've got them, you know, raised up. But the, I think, broader point is that, so tomorrow is completely right, that you've got this group, and especially, right, not only is that group activated to vote, they vote in primaries, right, which means that that's why the candidates that we see, right, and what they're doing once they're in office, right, is really reflecting sort of those primary priorities rather than maybe a general election. In the general election, you've now got a broader group. You know this primary-based voters are going to turn out because voting for them is a habit. It's everybody else that you're trying to get to figure out what might motivate them. And here's where it gets a little bit different. The problem is, is we're sort of never quite sure what it is that is going to inspire someone, especially who hasn't made voting a habit. But for a lot of people, right, the response that, you know, they get, like they hear my political science professor and they say, oh, I hate politics. It's so boring. Unless you can attach it to something they care about. As silly as it is, the cancellation of their favorite music festival might be the thing that actually gets some people to finally get interested in vote. Now, it's going to be a small proportion, but that's the kind of thing like now all of a sudden, they can see why policy decisions matter, right? How it might affect them and where that can go. Now, are they going to remember it? Well, I mean, if they keep running ads, possibly. But that's kind of the thing. With voting, it's about what can you convince people is enough to make this actually matter such that they'll go vote instead of doing something else. Okay, thank you all for a really good discussion around this uh, story. We'll obviously keep track of how it plays in political campaigns. By the way, I did just get an email from a listener who reminded me that I I kind of misspoke when I talked about open carry. Uh, she said to me, hey, it's not that we have open carry. We've had that for a long time. The new law gives us permitless carry, and that's absolutely correct. And so I just wanted to make that correction uh, quickly. All right, let's get our first break out of the way. And when we come back, let's talk about the big decision by the Department of Revenue on uh, new tax deductions from the state state income tax that uh, parents who are expecting a baby are going to be able to get. This is Political Rewind. Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon.
Leo Smith, Amy Steigerwatt, Chauncey Alcorn, and Tamar Hallerman join me for today's Political Rewind. Tamar, uh, we, uh, we were waiting to hear how Georgia's personhood law, part of the uh, restrictive abortion law, passed and signed into law by the governor and then affirmed uh, by the court, so it is in effect. How would that personhood law now start playing out? And we've seen the first shoe drop on that. The Department of Revenue yesterday announced that if you're pregnant, uh, you are able to deduct your uh, embryo from your state income tax as a child deduction, right? $3,000 tax deduction. Uh, pretty pretty nice. You know, a lot of the agencies that my colleague Maya Prabhu had reached out to about the implications of this personhood language, people didn't really know what it was going to mean after um, Roe was struck down. It was something that I think a lot of agencies hadn't put much thought into because for the longest time, Roe versus Wade was the law of the land. Uh, the heartbeat law was brought, was blocked in court. And I think many folks, when you really ask them, thought that the law was going to be upheld and that they didn't need to worry about this. So this is one of the more interesting kind of trickle-down effects of this. Um, you know, there, there's all sorts of talk about what it means if a pregnant woman rides in the HOV lane, what happens with child support, alimony, all sorts of things. Uh, but now already we're seeing our first bit of guidance. And it does raise questions uh, just about the practicalities of life. How do you prove that you're pregnant? What happens if you have a miscarriage? All of these are things that are going to have to be worked out by all of these various state agencies. Well, that's right. And Leo, one agency after another is going to have to weigh in on what parenthood means and how it impacts uh, how they oversee certain different fairs in the state of Georgia. Nothing like policy to make you have a larger moral question, a moral argument that has been made. I always say that if you want uh, smaller government conservatives, then you got to be bigger people. And that's been one of the challenges that the left has put on the right, that if you are going to restrict a woman's right to choose and to have an abortion, then are you encouraging an ecosystem that allows for people to be able to have a family? So Republicans are going to argue that this policy encourages the well-being of a family unit. Of It gives resources to someone who is going to be going through a medical process to protect a life. So they're going to call this a pro-family policy, a pro-economic unit policy. And that's what this argument now starts to uh, to allow to debate. All right. So, Amy, I want to bring you and Chauncey in. And, Amy, I want to start with you because uh, you, in, uh, you, you oversee the uh, interns, the legislative interns, every year. And so you pay close attention to what's happening at the state capitol. Uh, the personhood law... Um, opens the door legally for uh, this tax income tax deduction to be applied. The legislature doesn't have to take any further action on this at all, in the same way other agencies won't either when they apply the law in terms of their area of uh, interest. But so let me ask you this. If this personhood um, had been a, this personhood statute had been a bill presented independently uh, in front of the legislature, it would have, I assume, had to have a fiscal note attached to it. How much would it cost the state to give $3,000 deductions suddenly to embryos? Okay, so here's what I did a little while ago, Amy. I saw that in 2020, there were 123,000 123, live births in the state of Georgia. Multiply that by 3,000, and I'm doing it as we speak, you get $369 million. Now, I'm bad at math, and I don't even trust my work on a calculator, but I think that figure is correct. That's a staggering loss of income for the state of Georgia. Uh, yes. I mean, there, there's a lot of, <laughs> I think, unintended consequences that come into this, because in many ways, sort of as, as Leo was sort of mentioning, right, that portion of it was really sort of a moral, um, aspirational idea of what they wanted in the law. It was partly written because they wanted to challenge Roe v. Wade. They knew that it would be not put in place. And to be perfectly blunt, everyone knew that it was unconstitutional when it was passed. And so there wasn't a lot of discussion about what that provision of the law meant. Now that it's actually in effect, 
That's the provision of the law that in many ways, we don't really know what the implications are because while it has a couple of things that are written into it that were very specific, one of them about the claiming of tax deductions, a second about uh, claiming of child support, and a third about the census counting, it also changes the definition of person in the very top of the entirety of the Georgia Code, which means that it now applies all the way through. And that's the part that nobody has really started to deal with and handle because it changes it for every single provision of the code, even beyond those that are already mentioned in the law. And those are going to be the ramifications that we don't know, right, both in terms of fiscal as well as just the practical implications of what does it mean and what is now going to happen. Chauncey? There's a couple of things to note. One, uh, as Amy just pointed out, I, I thought that one of the uh, more interesting aspects is how this is affecting um, uh, child support um, payments um, uh, across across the state and the country. You know, that's something uh, that uh, I think women rightly should raise. If you're going to force us to carry babies determine if it's a person uh, while, while the woman is pregnant, then that means um, the men who get these women pregnant should be paying for these children. Um, throughout the nine months of pregnancy. So that's something we're going to see. There was also the interesting case in Texas, a very clever young woman who was driving, uh, got a ticket for driving in the carpool lane um, with, uh, without a passenger, and she pointed out, well, I'm pregnant. And in Texas, that means uh, there's a passenger in the car with me and a uh, challenge ticket, and good for her on doing that. So it's going to uh, – I can't even imagine. I think the in vitro fertilization issue is going to be one as well if an embryo is a person – then, you know, what do you do with um, fertility clinics where they're doing these tests? Um, this can go on and on. I, I, always when you, pass, when you uh, pass laws or have rulings like this, overturning precedent, you're going to, you know, set off a, a, a domino effect. And this is going to be playing out in people's lives um, for, until this gets settled. Well, Amy, uh, let me go back to this child support issue very quickly, uh, since you really have a real grasp of the law around this. If if a couple is going through divorce and uh, the, the woman is pregnant, would the judge in this case have to see as a fact of law that the fetus deserves additional child support payments? Or does that become a matter for a judge and the two parties, in most, as they do in most lawsuit, uh, uh, divorce cases, to negotiate this out? Or is it absolutely a given that the fetus has to be considered for child support? So I'm going to, on this one, probably defer to family law lawyers, but at least the, the okay. law as it's like the, the language of the law says that upon pregnancy, there will be child support payment. So that would suggest that it is an automatic rather than a negotiation. Okay, well, I th so tomorrow we've already uh, said this, but this just, I, I point that out just because the complications around this are endless, as you've already, all of you pointed out tomorrow. Yeah, and what happens if you're pregnant for only a short while? Um, and, and kind of where's the line? If you're, if you're pregnant for a month or two, does that count? Is it only if you make it into your second trimester? What if you have a stillbirth? Um, there's all sorts of complications here. What if you get what if you get pregnant on December 30th? You know, like how do you how do you prove all of that? How invasive do you want to be in terms of being able to proving all of this? You know, it's one thing to have rhetoric on the House or Senate floor about how you're pro-life or pro-choice, but it's very different once you start having to go before an executive agency where the rubber meets the road. They have to write these. You know, they kind of have to fill in all these details and, as Leah said, make all of these kind of moral choices. Um, which is not necessarily what bureaucrats are designed and trained to do. Leo, um, do you imagine that the Republicans who moved this bill through the legislature understood all of the complications that were going to uh, uh, come out of it? Or was this in many ways another one of those culture war issues? I will give them, I will say, I, I do believe there are Republicans, conservative Republicans, especially religious conservative Republicans who really honor life as something that starts at, at, at conception. 
But do you think they had the vaguest idea of what they were doing, or was this a culture war issue, among other things? No, it certainly stimulated um, by a cultural war and also by a very, very, um, you know, hard-fought special interest um, by, by the life community, the pro-life, the, uh, pro-life activist community. But I think the heartbeat bill in itself was not expected to um, become actual law, um, not by uh, uh, leaders at the Capitol. And now that it has been, uh, it's something that you just have to deal with and you have to uh, robustly figure out, okay, what do we do from here? And there will be lots of legal challenges. One thing we know, uh, lawyers will be making a lot of money in the next few uh, months and years to come on this issue. Um, And all from tax code to municipal law to um, these issues of life. So this is something sort of like where, you know, we, we, we did something for turnout to promise a certain level of action to a base, and now we're having to deal with the repercussions of that becoming actual law, which again gets back to um, the the seriousness of voting and the seriousness of being engaged in politics, because we're in an environment now where the political theater that gets involved takes over to above reason. And so political theater and short-term effect on fundraising and uh, winning a primary, it has become more important than good governance. And that's a problem. Um, All right. Why don't we do this? Let's get our final break of the show out of the way right now, because there are several more issues that I'm really looking forward to hearing this panel discuss. So we'll take a break, come back with more on Political Rewind. At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. Two brief notes before we uh, continue with the panel. Uh, First of all, tomorrow is newsletter day here at Political Rewind. We'll be working on it uh, throughout this afternoon and even early tomorrow morning. If you're not a subscriber, I hope you'll join us. You can do it by going to gpb.org slash newsletters and uh, sign up to get it in your inbox every Wednesday, gpb.org slash newsletters. And the second thing I'd like to do, I mentioned it very briefly at the end of the show yesterday, but we were really short of time, so I want to give it a little more play right now. We are so pleased, Natalie Mendenhall and I, to welcome Chase McGee as a new full-time producer for Political Rewind. Um, Chase has been working with us in a uh, temporary capacity, and uh, when the job opened up, we were delighted uh, to be able to offer it to him. He's a newly minted graduate of the University of Georgia, starting off a career in radio and politics, and we couldn't be happier uh, than to have Chase uh, with us. So I just wanted to get that said uh, with a little more emphasis today. All right, let's get back to uh, talking politics. Tomorrow, there's nobody... Uh, in journalism, who has been more on top of the special grand jury looking into uh, all of the uh, misdeeds of those trying to overturn the results of the 2020 election. Why don't you fill us in, if you don't mind, on the latest information that you're finding? What are the latest developments and what should we be talking about in terms of that today? Sure. Well, kind of looking ahead, there's kind of two big events that are going to happen next week. The first is that Rudy Giuliani, the personal lawyer of former President Trump, has been told by a New York judge that he has to appear in Atlanta before the special grand jury a week from today on Tuesday. And if he doesn't show up, he could be arrested and kind of dragged to Atlanta to to come testify. We're expecting him to cite some sort of privilege, either attorney clients or executive privilege, to try and block any sort of testimony. But that will be a huge media circus moment in downtown Atlanta, for sure. We've also seen some new developments from Senator Lindsey Graham, who placed two phone calls to Brad Raffensperger's office uh, in November 2020. Remember, he was asking about the procedures for when you can toss out absentee ballots due to 
signature verification, that sort of thing. He has been fighting his subpoena, he says, because he was a, he's a member of the Senate and was chairman of the Senate Judiciary Committee when he called Raffensperger. He should be blocked from having to testify because of legislative privilege. Um, he's moving to quash that subpoena, and there'll be a hearing in Atlanta federal court next week. Um, otherwise, things are happening in secret. It's kind of hard to kind of keep up with what's going on. We do know last week that the fake electors um, were directed to come and testify last week. They tried to fight it. They were not able to, but we were, were not expecting them to say very much. Remember, all 16 of them were told they're targets of the investigation. Well, th thank you for that uh, 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 summary. I want to give our panel a chance to comment on each of those things. Before I do, one last item. We know now that, um, that uh, Judge McBurney has removed Fonnie Willis from being able to further investigate or interrogate Burt Jones, the candidate for lieutenant governor, uh, because he saw it, saw it as a massive conflict of interest since she supports and had a fundraiser for Burt Jones' Democratic opponent, uh, Charlie Bailey. Where do we, do we have any information on where it stands on getting a new prosecuting body to look at Burt Jones, or is that still hanging in the air? I would consider that shelved for now. So basically the Prosecuting Attorney's Council of Georgia will be appointing another DA's office or has been given the power to appoint another DA's office to step in just when it comes to investigating Burt Jones. Um, so right now, the Fulton DA's office, they can kind of ask questions about what he was up to, but they can't consider him a target of the investigation, can't subpoena him, can't talk to him, can't charge him with any crimes. And the Prosecuting Attorney's Council of Georgia has indicated that they aren't in a giant rush to do this. They, you know, they even kind of suggested we might want to wait um, a while before we, we do this. And we haven't even decided if we want to do this at all. So I think that's great news for Burt Jones and his run for lieutenant governor. He can kind of run and say, hey, look, this non-partial judge just smacked down the Fulton DA's office. Um, you know, we don't need to talk about this anymore. So he might be in the clear until after the election. We don't quite know Let just yet. We should remind our listeners that Burt Jones was, was among the fake electors who met at the state capitol and certified to the uh, National Archives that they were, in fact, a legitimate body of possible electors. Leo, let's go back to Rudolph Giuliani for a minute. I think it's always important to remember that he came to Georgia to testify twice, I think it was, uh, to spin his conspiracy theories in front of legislative committees about the stolen election. He was particularly uh, worried about what happened, he said, at State Farm Arena, where he claimed that election workers were uh, feeding fake ballots into uh, a machine, which turned out to be, of course, a complete fabrication. Uh, and he lost because of th those sorts of behaviors and the lawsuits, the frivolous lawsuits he was involved in that led uh, the New York bar to disbar him. Yeah, I mean, Rudy Giuliani is a sad story of a misspent eldership. <laughs> so misspent youth, misspent eldership on his problem and his thought. And, you know, and it's just absolutely, I mean, it was complete lying that Rudy Giuliani did, drifting for money and power with the Trump regime. And, and that's just uh, very unfortunate. And, and so... You know, right. He's been held accountable in New York. Uh, now he has to face the music here in Georgia. I want to get back to um, uh, DA Fannie Williams, uh, Willis's situation. I mean, that's just a major error. And we just got to call it what it is. And, and uh, you know, I deal with a lot of judge candidates, I've consulted for judge candidates. They're really strict about, you know, political donations, being involved at a political event, putting their names on steering committees. All of them have been so disciplined, and just it kind of befuddles me how she was sort of had a lack of discipline when it came to this AG race. Uh, she, it, it, Chauncey, it, uh, Leo makes a good point, and I suspect that Fannie Willis might be beating her head against the wall when she realizes it was sort of an unforced error to hold a fundraiser for Charlie Bailey. It was during the primary. He was not the candidate, neither was Burt Jones, and that would be her uh, that was the response of her office. To, am I wrong, Tamar? This was for the runoff. So this was when um, oh, the so Burt Jones was Thank already you. the Republican nominee and uh, when okay. Charlie Bailey was against Kwanza Hall. Oh, okay. Thank you for that clarification. She, she would say that that, though, creates some distance of 
uh, from this being a, a head-to-head Charlie Bailey versus Burt Jones matchup. But um, Chauncey, n- nevertheless, um, the the special grand jury is going to move forward with all their other investigations, including the rest of the fake electors, um, including looking at Rudolph Giuliani. And the Lindsey Graham testimony is particularly interesting. Uh, this notion that when he called Raffensperger uh, to say, gee, I'm just interested as chairman of the Senate Judiciary Committee to know how you handle uh, some absentee ballots that might be questionable. He sees that as uh, 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 performing his duty as a senator, and therefore he's exempt from having to talk about it. I was just double-checking. Uh, his Senate, uh, his term is not up until 2027. I think that he might be yeah. lucky for, um, for that after being elected in 2020. I've, I've been fascinated uh, with Lindsey Graham's uh, Trump uh, era um, uh, shenanigans. He, this was the guy who came out against Trump when he was running um, in ahead of the 2016 election, and then became one of his most ardent supporters, which is how we got here in the first place. Uh, obviously, on January 6th, he was singing a very different tune. He was saying he was out and he wasn't involved. Uh, he was, you know, it was kind of uh, uh, one of the people that uh, uh, one of the many Republicans that uh, said this was a bridge too far. And here we have him again on the opposite side of the situation. And, you know, I, I don't know. Uh, obviously, he doesn't want to, you don't want to be the guy that, uh, first of all, his own uh, potential legal involvement in the situation, but also not wanting to be a guy that involves implicating uh, the former president. Um, it's not going to work well for him politically. But lucky for him, he doesn't have to worry about reelection until 2026. So, Amy, uh, weigh in on any of this. Um, so what's going to be interesting is that, so Lindsey Graham has filed, right, trying to quash the subpoena, and we do have a little, so we've had a similar attempt actually by current Congressman Jody Heiss, uh, the yes. same district yes. court judge that has Graham's case, had Heiss's case, and the district court judge in Heiss's case, which was decided first, said, actually, you do have to testify, but... I'm going to send this back to the Fulton County Superior Court to come up with sort of parameters of the questions that they can ask you so that we take into account these things, but it doesn't completely bar you from being subpoenaed and from trying to answer questions. So that gives some indication of what we might also see um, with Lindsey Graham. Now, the one difference is that Graham is on the Senate Judiciary Committee, and I do not think Heiss is on, I'm pretty positive that he is not on the Judiciary Committee, and they've got a broader thing. And so, that may give him a little bit more leeway because it's so much more tied to the types of laws that they're doing than heist, where it's a bit more of a fishing expedition. But it does suggest, though, that in almost all of these cases, what we have continued to see are the federal courts saying, no, these are, in fact, issues that are okay to be looked into, and it is not necessarily a protection that you hold an official seat, right? That doesn't stop this from being something that we can look at because this is getting into activity, which is not, in fact, part of your official duties. And so it'll be, that that's what I'm going to be watching. Well, okay, so tomorrow to put just a period on this part of the conversation, all of this is to say that as important as the uh, January 6th committee's uh, hearings are, as important as the DOJ investigation that they've now stepped up is, the Fulton County Special Grand Jury, uh, to most people's eye, appears to be the place that really, where the rubber meets the road on what can happen to these election deniers in terms of actually facing possible criminal consequences, yes? Yeah, I mean, this thing is chugging along so quickly as everyone waits for kind of a sign from Merrick Garland up in Washington about what he wants to do. They've been quietly doing the work here in Georgia. It's worth noting, though, that this special grand jury is an investigative body. They can subpoena for testimony. They can subpoena for evidence and documents. They cannot indict someone. So at the end of the day, they'll make a recommendation to the district attorney about whether somebody should be indicted. But ultimately, that's going to be her decision. Okay, um, we will continue to watch it, and Tamar, uh, we're so so grateful the way you've stayed on top of this for the AJC and that we get 
to share your intelligence here on this show, uh, the intelligence that you gather on this show as well. Leo, we're, we're almost out of time, but I want to ask you about a, uh, a growing concern uh, at the NRSC, the, the Republican Senate Campaign Committee. Um, they're worried that Mehmet Oz, who is their candidate for the United States Senate in uh, Pennsylvania, is really performing uh, poorly in many ways. We won't go into detail about why, but he's just not resonating, apparently, with voters up there at this point. And, and so they're starting to look at states like Georgia as even more crucial to whether or not they can win a majority in the U.S. Senate. And it means that Herschel Walker becomes even more important to the NRSC and National Republicans' hopes for the fall. Yeah, Mehmet Oz was weak all along, and uh, people knew that and were worried about him as a candidate emerging from the primaries. And it does indeed put uh, pressure on the Herschel Walker uh, Wanock campaign for Republicans, especially since Wanock is, I mean, uh, Wanock is pulling away a little bit when it comes to polling, and uh, it's going to be very uh, difficult for Herschel to catch up. And that's again where these 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 issues that animate a base more than a candidate become really important. So for Walker to have this gun issue become a big issue is important to him because that's an issue more important than the person that people might be voting for. They'll be voting for policy. Chauncey, again, we're short on time, but the, the, one of the things that's really, really noteworthy about this race is you have two African-American candidates running against each other for the United States Senate. The fact that it's happening in Georgia makes it even more remarkable. Yeah, I was, I was thinking that, you know, how much Dr. Oz must feel that he's less popular than uh, with Republicans than Herschel Walker, given all the uh, stuff that's going on <laughs> with that race so far. Um, yeah, I, I think uh, it's, I, I pointed this out in, a, in uh, when uh, um, Walker won the primary. Um, one of the things that I think is kind of thrown under the radar, it's not very many African-American senators in U.S. history. So it's, it's going to be interesting to see how it plays out. All right. Chauncey Elkhorn gets the last word on Political Rewind today. Thanks for being with us, Chauncey. Leo Smith, Amy Steigerwald, Tamar Hallerman. Another great discussion today. It makes me feel privileged to be part of this show and hear your analysis. We're completely out of time. Back with another brand uh, brand new show again tomorrow. In the meantime, I'm Bill Maggot. Please take care and stay healthy. Bye-bye, everybody.